0: On the north, south, and west sides, the village is surrounded by dreary limestone hills. Uh, Looking out to the east, it's a bit more open, but it's no more hospitable. Um, Over a distance of, what, maybe 10 to 15 miles or so, it slopes down from about 2,000 feet above sea level to 1,000 feet below sea level. It's rough terrain. It's boulder strewn, it's, it's hummocky, and it ends with a great, I would say, shimmering vat of water in the distance. Mists rise from it eerily at noontime. This is one of the driest and most poisoned regions of our whole planet. It's a desol- desolate, and a haggard world. At nighttime you can hear the the wild beasts howling. At dawn you can see the the blackened sites of the deserted camps with with loose stones marking the graves of those who have gone before. Uh, One writer puts it this way, all reveal a human life as vagabond and as nameless as that of the beasts. It's a very dreary world, it's empty, it's silent, it's forlorn. This is Tekoa, the home of the prophet Amos. And there we go. To the north, just a few miles, we meet a very, very different scene. We come to a place in the northern kingdom called Bethel. It's about twenty miles away. Uh, Jerusalem's about, say, ten or twelve miles to the north of Tekoa, and and Bethel is just a bit beyond that, but it's not like Tekoa. It's a place of sophistication and complexity, of of vivid cultural life, of, of fabulous riches. And here we have a, not a rural world or a desert world, but, a, but an urban scene, prosperous, with a thriving social life, and what's more, with enthusiastic religion. Bethel is the spiritual center of the northern kingdom, Israel, of its stylish society. Of course, it had benefited from the, the lucrative levies of a, of a flourishing imports and exports trade and from the control of those important trading routes. It's got everything going for it. Bethel. It's got an affluent lifestyle, a booming economy, an opulent way of life. It's confident, it's secure, and what's more, it's certain that these are the tangible evidences of God's blessings. Now, the problem is, Amos from Tekoa. He doesn't see it that way. To him, the apparent blessing of economic wealth is diseased, and it's diseased with the avarice of, I suppose we'd call them the nouveau riche, those with richly gotten gains. To Amos, Bethel is polluted with self-gratification and with greed. It's glutted, but it's glutted with money and with materialism. It reeks to Amos of corruption. He sees embezzlement, careless luxury. He speaks caustically of people swilling down buckets of wine, of pretentious music. He sees vulgarity and decadence and oppression. He sees the tyranny of the courts. He sees their unscrupulous treatment of the small farmer the small farmer who's the real backbone of of that economy. He he sees how a series of bad harvests plunges the small holding farmer into a financial crisis. The farmer has no option but to borrow money and borrow it at exorbitant interest rates, borrowing from a corrupt, rich merchant class who use resources only for their own excessive luxury. They're a class, if I might say it, like modern capitalists. They accumulate just for the sake of accumulating. And of course, the poor farmer can't pay. When that happens, his land, his wife, his children are confiscated by the land hungry, who of course are aided in their cause by corrupt and venal judges that's Amos' view. But hey, what would he know? I mean, he's just a shepherd. I'll tell you something else. He's from the south. He comes from south of the border, from Judah. He's not from Israel at all. He's not one of us. He's from that place, Dickens, what's it called? Uh, oh, yeah, Tekoa, Ballymac Tekoa, wherever the Dickens that is in the back of beyond. He doesn't understand modern market forces. He doesn't understand the modern economy. Look, he even admits himself that he has no formal training in the art and science of prophecy. He tells us that he had never come from a prophetic tradition. If you wanted to flick over in your Bibles to chapter 7, you'd hear him say this, "'I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd.'" And I took care of sycamore fig trees, but the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, "Go prophesy to my people Israel." You see, you see, Amos had not been to the local prophet academy. He he didn't have any official credentials. He didn't have any carefully manicured CV to equip him for the job. The hands of the presbytery had never been laid on him. He'd never been ordained or been consecrated, and he's an outsider. But Amos has been trained in the school of life. It was instead, as, as, as one writer wonderfully puts it, it was in the wilderness where life is full of poverty and danger, that Amos did the work which made him a man and heard the voice of God calling him to be a prophet. Well, this is the guy that I would like us to get to know over the next couple of weeks, two or three weeks. Now, I have to say it's been a pretty uncomfortable experience for me thinking about Amos over the past little while. I mean, to be fair, he's haunted me for years, but he really has haunted me over this past couple of weeks. And you know, I hope it's going to be uncomfortable for you as well. One writer's put it this way, Amos is one of the most wonderful appearances in the history of the human spirit. So do you mind if we live with him for the next few Sundays? There's something desperately prickly about this character, but he's at the same time altogether compelling. Now, naturally, in three talks I'll only be able to begin to scratch the surface of this complex character. And if I convey even a fleeting taste, even the most fleeting taste, of the flavor of Amos's prophecy, honestly, I'll be very well pleased. What I'm also going to try to do a bit more dangerously is to hint just a little at what Amos might say if he were living in our society today. Now, and of course, I really don't know what that would look like. But here's the thing, I have the suspicion that if I even get it half right, it should terribly offend us. And here's the thing too, if it doesn't offend us, well then, I haven't even got them half right. For I feel sure that we'll not have got to the bottom of this remarkable character if we leave church feeling pretty good about ourselves. You see, sometimes when we hear the words that were so splendidly and movingly read to us by Susan this morning, when we hear the words of a biblical figure we can sort of take it because it's in the Bible, and therefore it must be okay. We're sort of used to prophet talk as long as it's in the dim and distant past. We're used to it. We're inured to it. We are, we're happy about it as long as it's conveyed in, well, in church language. It's fine to hear it read from the Scriptures because, well, they're inspired, isn't it? But But when we try to think about that in the here and now, I think that's a very different thing. You see, I just have this vague feeling that if those doors were to burst open this morning, and if Amos in his evil-smelling shepherd's cloak with his mad eyes and his blunt talk were to stomp in here to this podium and begin shouting his diagnosis of our modern church condition, I don't think we'd feel too good. I'll tell you, I'd be the first one to find some way of discrediting him. I'd be the first one to dismiss him. I'd be the first one to undermine him, and those of you who know me well know that I'm pretty good at doing that. So anyway, here's my first attempt this morning, my first effort to get looking at Amos's strategy. What I think I'm going to do is I'll try to think about that first sermon that Susan read for us, to try to get something of the measure of the prophetic voice that Amos adopted. And then if I've got the courage over the next ten minutes, I'll maybe at the end make a suggestion or two about our own day. Feel free to ignore that part. I'm sure we will. So as, um, as Amos trudges across the border from Judah, southern kingdom, into the northern kingdom of Israel. Somewhere in the middle of the 8th century, he was entering an empire that was enjoying perhaps its most uh, prosperous era, perhaps its best years of prosperity and peace under the reign of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam had had pushed forward a a suite of expansionist programs that delivered to the northern kingdom a very, very safe and, and splendid international situation. Everything was going well. The economy was booming. They were enthusiastically throwing themselves into the very activity which our own society cherishes so much: wealth creation. They were fervent worshippers at the shrine of economic growth and Amos 's tactic is simple. He begins to shout: "The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem." You see, Amos is using an image from his background as a man from the backwoods, from the wilderness, the picture of a lion roaring. Now, Amos would have known pretty well that a lion does not roar when it's stalking its prey. At that stage of the chase, the the lion is stealthy and silent. No, the lion roars when it's already in full flight, when it's in mid-air, descending upon its prey and descending for the kill, when you hear the roar, it's too late. The roar is to petrify the quarry into frozen terror, and then the lion has the prey. God is that lion, and judgment is descending, Amos says right now." Pretty dramatic announcement, isn't it? Disaster is imminent. Destruction is inevitable. The day of reckoning is here now. Who's this first victim? It's Syria. It's symbolized by the city of Damascus what's its crime? Well, on your order of service, uh, which which Susan read for us this morning, you'll see from chapter 1, verse 3, that she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I'm not sure if it's exactly the same version, but it's it's pretty substantially the same. Uh, This likely refers to some kind of torture that Syria had practiced during wartime. It seemed that the Syrians had placed prisoners of war on the ground, something like that, and then driven over them with some threshing machine-like contraption. It was a war crime. It was a crime against humanity. It was an atrocity of the most cruel and pitiless proportions, and it calls forth God's judgment. Now is the turn of Philistia, represented by Gaza. Now, the issue here seems to be a policy of what you might call depopulation, likely some form of ethnic cleansing. Uh, Listen to chapter 1, verse 6 if you have it, she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. This was a kind of economic strategy by selling captives into slavery along the great trade route between Egypt and Arabia, they reaped the most handsome commercial rewards. So you see, if the Syrians had treated people like things in battle, the Philistines treated people like things in business. And so it goes on. Amos is on a roll, and he's on a roll call. It's a roll call of the surrounding nations. Tyre is next in line. The chief city of the Phoenicians, another nation involved in the inhuman trafficking of human merchandise. Then another northern realm. From here Amos' steely eye turns to the southern realm, Edom. It's not exactly clear what the precise problem here is, but its broad contours are plain enough. It's acted with vindictiveness, probably against refugees from Judah. Cultivated antagonism. Edom, you see, showed no compassion, like picking away. At a crusted scab. The Edomites provoked their own anger. They, they, they kept stirring it up. They kept their rage on the boil. Ammon is next in line, condemned for cold-blooded cruelty that characterized their expansionist politics. God judges them for pursuing a foreign policy that didn't care for human life, and it's something the same with Moab. I think we should pause here for a minute, and I want us to just just for a minute think about a couple of things about Amos's litany of evil, if I can call it that. Now, the first thing that's clear here is that Amos is including in his condemnation what we might now call, or they might at that stage have called, pagan cultures. The catalog of condemnation includes those unbelieving nations that have not enjoyed the privileges of uh, Israel's revelation. They're under God's judgment, even though they have not benefited from the voice of the prophets. Their sins are simply crimes against humanity. They're simply evils against the human condition, and they're held responsible for violating human intuition and for desecrating the decencies of just ordinary, commoner garden, human nature. But, but there's a second thing, note here, and I think this is the clever brilliance of Amos. Amos is speaking out against Israel's enemies. These were Israel's traditional enemies, and I think that this sermon beginning this way was a strategy that would ensure a warm hearing from his listeners. You see, they could comfortably have thought by this stage, this sermon isn't for us. It's for them. It's comfortably and cosily a sermon for somebody else. It's about an axis of evil, isn't it? It's about the unprovoked vices of these foreign others that brings down God's lion-like violence crashing upon them. Uh, If you're awake, you'll have noticed the language I was using there about the axis of evil, didn't you? We don't need to stop over long about this, to hear echoes in our own day of us and them, an axis of evil, a war on warriors, a war on terror, a war on terrorism. But you see, Amos' next move might have begun to introduce a little moment of doubt in their minds, because he moves now to the southern kingdom, to Judah, his own homeland, to Judah itself. And here, interestingly, the problem is not crimes against humanity, but offenses against God's revelation. Judah has neglected the law of the Lord and has been seduced into idolatry, Amos isn't going to let his own society off the hook, but but all of this is simply background. Amos is securing a hearing because the real object of Amos' deep-seated anger is, of course, Israel itself. It's a superb strategy, of course, because having concurred with Amos's analysis of their enemies, they now find themselves on the receiving end of precisely the same logic. God will apply the self-same standards of compassion and virtue and morality, perhaps even higher ones, to Israel herself. You see, to Amos, the axis of evil never points in just one direction. It's like a compass needle. It swivels as you turn around, and now it's pointing back to God's own chosen people, the people of Israel, the very elect nation who have enjoyed the benefits of God's revelation, of God's protection and nurturing and care. The people who flock to Bethel, to engage in hearty religious duties, to offer lively and enthusiastic worship. They are on the receiving end of the Lord's violent wrath. Now, Israel's vices make for sober reading. Amos begins first here in the second chapter, verse 6, with what I would call economic oppression, economic oppression. Oppression. Listen, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor. You see, here's an economic system that's built on the exploitation of the weak and the vulnerable. This is a society where the rich get richer and the poor are the victims of injustice. It's a society where the poverty gap between the rich and the poor is getting wider and wider. The courts pervert fair dealing. Interest rates are exorbitant. The poor farmer, as I say, borrows to survive to the point where his holdings and his family are confiscated to pay off the debt. But of course, the merchants don't give a fig for their human rights. Surely debt collecting is right and proper, they think. But Amos says they sell the poor for a pair of shoes. They sell them for a song. And no doubt they thought that that's all the lazy were really worth. But more. This society has not only just engaged in economic oppression, it has practiced religious subversion. According to Amos... Israel has polluted the purity of the Nazarites. Uh, They were those uh, people specially set apart by God who had taken vows of consecration, and they were polluted in this society. The prophets had been guided. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. You made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now, I have no doubt that such actions were explicitly put into operation on occasion. But I have the suspicion that some of the prophets were only too happy to collude with the powers that be. The fat of the land, the titillating pleasures of a decadent culture, the lure of power, the lure of prestige. I'm sure they were as tempting to the prophets and were as rampant then as they are now. After all, the high priest Amaziah, if you turn over at lunchtime, I hope you will, to chapter 7, he tips off the king about Amos' subversive tactics. He's raising a conspiracy against you, Amos reports in the 10th verse of chapter 7. Amaziah, for one, had obviously willingly bought into the establishment's culture, its benefits. He'd bought into its pleasures. He'd bought into its delights. And he tells Amos to clear off and get back where you belong, to Judah and Balaimach, to Koach. Well, that's Amos for you. That's what he's all about. He's all about challenging the culture. He's about slamming the established order. He's about exposing its corruptions and self-satisfactions. He's about unmasking its idolatries. He's about lifting the lid off its self-assured prosperity and revealing beneath seething corruption, vice, oppression, just under the surface. On the 15th of June this year, I had to make a day trip to London. And I had with me a book that I'd bought, oh, just a couple of weeks before— it disturbed me profoundly. And so, a generous sharer that I am, I want to share a bit of it with you. It terribly reminded me of the prophet Amos. It's by a, a well-known literary critic, Terry Eagleton. And as far as I know, Terry Eagleton is not a Christian believer, though I have to say there are definitely strange signals on the horizon. But Eagleton feels that the modern rejection of Christianity by what I suppose we could call hip atheists like Richard Dawkins and Dan Dennett, he thinks it's been far too easy. Uh, He thinks that Hitchens and Dawkins and Dennett have rejected a simplistic and completely caricatured version of the Christian faith, and that really their attack on Christianity is motivated by deep deep prejudice. Now, remember, this is coming from someone who I think himself is as yet still an unbeliever. He thinks that they display massive intolerance and superficial thinking. As as, as he puts it in his book in in some colorful language, they've bought the rejection of Christianity on the cheap by triumphantly dismissing out of hand a version of Christianity that only seriously weird types would ever have espoused in the first place. Because analysis, I think, repairs careful study. But, but I want to use him for another point this morning. I want to use him to point to, to something else, and I don't know if you like this. He paints a picture of what he thinks a really authentic version of Christianity would look like, one that should command respect, even admiration, even from those who do not embrace it. And as I read this, wonderful depiction. The problem was that it didn't look very much like what passes as Christianity in many places today. To me, it looked awfully like what Amos might say if he were living with us today. Now, now over these next couple of talks, I am going to return a couple of times to to Eagleton's vision, but, but let me give you just a flavor of this as I draw to a close this morning. Gosh, I've been going too long. He's talking about the God of Scripture, and the first thing he says is that the God of Scripture really appears to be almost an anti-God, in the sense that He's nothing like what you would expect if you compare them with all the gods of the other ancient religions. And I quote him, this God hates burnt offerings and acts of smug self-righteousness. This God is the enemy of idols fetishes, and graven images of all kinds, gods, churches, ritual sacrifice, the stars and stripes, nations, success, sex, and the like. You shall know him for who he is when you see the hungry being filled with good things, when you see the rich being sent away empty-handed, Salvation is not a matter of law and ritual. It's not a matter of special observances or conformity to a moral code, of slaughtering animals for sacrifice, or even of being splendidly virtuous. It's a question of feeding the hungry, welcoming the immigrants, visiting the sick, protecting the poor, the orphaned, and the widowed from the violence of the rich. Messiahs are not supposed to be born in stables, he says. They're usually high-born, heroic warriors who lead the nation in battle against its enemies. They're not like Jesus. They do not reject weapons of destruction or enter the national capital riding on a donkey. He thinks contemporary Christianity doesn't look much like that, He's puzzled by a faith that's horrified by what goes on in the movies or on the stage, but, and I quote him, considerably less appalled by the obscene inequalities between rich and poor. It laments the death of a fetus, this modern Christianity, but is apparently undisturbed by the burning to death of children in Iraq or Afghanistan. You see, to him, Christianity in its essence should run right up against our modern economic system. He says, and he's an unbeliever, our modern economic system is inherently atheist. It's godless, he writes, in its practices, in its values, and in the beliefs that are implicit in them. It's a society where, he says, a society of packaged fulfillment— administered desire and consumerism can never cut to the depth where theological questions can even be asked. And then he concludes, Christians who are not an affront to the powers that be are not being faithful to Christ's mission. Christians who are not an affront to the powers that be are not being faithful to Christ's mission. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you think about that. Shucks, I don't know what I really think about it. But I have this awful feeling that it sounds just a little bit like Amos. And what's more, it sounds like a version of Christianity that actually bears more than a passing resemblance to the faith that Jesus practiced, the faith that Jesus practiced in the New Testament. I also have the feeling that figuring out how to practice that faith in the 21st century, that's the major task confronting Fitzroy and confronting the Church of Jesus Christ in the day in which we live.